Lord God, we pray your presence will be with us as we have sung your word, as we listen to your word, and as we read your word. Illumine our minds and our hearts. In the name of Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. The, the reading, the first reading is Psalm 25, and it's on page 492 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Do not let those who wait for me be put to shame. Who wait for you, excuse me. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. The word of the Lord. important for this sermon to, for this to be half empty. <laughs> I understand, I think, that the, the, the scripture we're reading today is from 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. The number you may have in your bulletin, the page number, is probably a 2 Thessalonians number, so that may be confusing to you. So if you go to that, just flip a few pages back and you should make it uh, to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. So listen now for the word of God to the church. Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. He has told us also that you always remember us kindly and long to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, during all our distress and persecution, we have been encouraged about you through your faith. For we now live if you continue to stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you? in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you face to face and restore whatever is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. So some of you have probably heard the old philosophy or even the old joke uh, about the glass that is half empty. Uh, The optimist sees it as half full. The pessimist sees it as half empty. The politician says that glass was completely full when my party was in power. The IT support guy says, maybe you should try emptying the glass and then refilling it. The physics professor says, that glass is not empty at all. It is half filled with liquid and half filled with air. And the professor's wife rolls her eyes and throws the contents of said glass in his know-it-all face. But in any event, this is a passage that we get, and Paul is clearly a pastor who is seeing the glass as half The Thessalonian church is, in Paul's eyes, an inspiration to the world. It was clear to Paul that God had chosen the Thessalonians as God's beloved people because, as Paul writes, our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known. This high praise for a church is pretty much unrivaled in all of Paul's other letters. At the same time, Paul also hints at the fact that that glass is not completely full. That despite all the good, that there are some things that are lacking. The church was anxious, for example, that Paul had not come back to visit them and to encourage them in person. They were also confused about the second coming of Christ, what they should believe about the second coming, and also what they should be doing while they waited for that second return to happen. And they were especially worried about what would happen to anyone who died before Christ came back. It seems that there may have even been a segment of the church that was beginning to grumble about Paul's pastoral leadership, suggesting that he was just preaching for personal gain and that he just liked to act a little too much like a dictator in how he ran the church. But what really seemed to worry Paul, the pastor, was what might happen to these people whom he loved. His early preaching had been so successful in Thessalonica that the leaders of the synagogue had rallied their full strength against him, and the danger had become so great that church members actually smuggled Paul out of town under the cover of night and sent him off to Berea. And it really pained Paul to leave behind these fledgling Christians, these people who were just beginning to learn the faith, because Paul knew that they would be in both physical and spiritual danger. These concerns and fears of Paul only serve to highlight the power of the prayer that Paul lifts up for the church in Thessalonica. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Love for one another and love for all, just as we abound in love for you. Paul's prayer is that whatever's lacking, be it courage or knowledge 
or safety and security or sound doctrine or perseverance of faith, whatever space in their spiritual cups might be empty at that particular time, that that space would be filled up with love. And not only that, but that the amount of love in their hearts would abound. And that second word, abound, translates the Greek verb periseo, which not only means abound, but also means to be over and above, to exceed the ordinary. In other words, Paul is praying that their cup would overflow, that it would runneth over in the same way that Paul's heart overflowed with love for them. Now, I've never experienced this firsthand myself, but I have heard that in some Japanese restaurants, ones that serve sake, they serve that drink in a special way. The waiter or waitress will bring a small glass, but instead of setting that glass down directly on the table, they will rest it in a small square wooden box called a masu. And the server then pours the sake into the glass, but keeps going when they get to the top so that that beverage overflows the sides of the glass and spills down out into the box. And it seems like it would be pretty awkward to drink that excess sake from a square wooden box, but the message is not lost on the patrons. They receive this as a gift, a gift of kindness, a show of appreciation by the restaurant, and a a gracious offering of abundant hospitality. Now, that kind of generosity is notable, but it fades in comparison to the overflowing blessings that God pours upon us, and we hear about it again and again in Scripture. For example, in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet compares the love of God to a trickle of a river that begins underneath one of the walls of the temple in Jerusalem. And that little trickle broadens and deepens till it's ankle deep and then knee deep and then waist deep. And pretty soon it's a river that's so wide and so deep that it cannot be crossed. And in in Ezekiel's prophecy, that river transforms the entire world into an abundant oasis. In Amos, God's justice rolls down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In Joel, the prophet Joel, the promise of God's love and care is a promise of abundant rain that falls. And the prophecy of Joel is that the Holy Spirit will literally be poured out liberally and freely upon the people of the world. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well about the water that he offers water that will keep her from ever being thirsty again. It's a blessing that overflows continually, a spring of water gushing up to eternal life, Jesus says. And then Christ later reveals that he has come into the world. The reason he's come into the world is so that the world might not only have life, but have it abundantly. And that's literally the same root word, essentially the same word that Paul uses in his prayer that the hearts of the Thessalonians would not just fill up, but actually overflow with an abundance of God's love. 
We really see this overflowing generosity in the life of Jesus at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He and his disciples are invited to a wedding celebration in the Galilean town of Cana. For some reason, the wine gives out early. Jesus' mother already has figured out that she has an exceptional son, and she's pretty sure that he might be able to help the hosts. So she goes and she says to Jesus, they have no wine. So it's one of those mom things where she doesn't really say what she wants him to do, but he kind of knows what she wants him to do. And then it's one of those son things because essentially, okay, I'll do it because I want to do it, but not because you told me to do it. And then the story goes into all kinds of great detail about the water. We're told that there were six big stone jars that were nearby. And these vessels were not for the party. These were not serving vessels. We know that because clay jars would have been more likely to be used in a serving capacity. But clay jars leak impurities into the water. So stone vessels were used when they needed to keep water ritually pure. So those jars were also significant because of their size. Ritual water jars of this kind would typically hold between 20 and 30 gallons of water each. And when Jesus said to go fill them, he said, fill all of them. And he said, fill them, quote, to the brim. So what that means is that when Jesus performed his first miracle with this water, a party that had no wine would suddenly have between 100 and 180 gallons of wine. And my guess is that the party picked up after that point. (laughs) The cups of the bride and the groom, all the celebrants of that party were literally running over. Their cups runneth over with the best wine. They said, why did you save this to last? This abundance of wonderful wine. On this first Sunday of Advent, we're all aware of the ways that our faith and our fidelity and our walks with the Lord may be lacking. We are all human. We are all sinners. And what that means is that our cups are half empty. At the same time, on this first Sunday of Advent, we can celebrate, just as Paul did, the amazing gifts that have already been poured into cups that are at least half full. This past week, Bart and Kim and I put our heads together and we compared notes on some of the truly wonderful things that we have experienced here in this community of faith. And we're in remarkable agreement on what many of those things are. You have a long-standing commitment to mission and to service, which is something that is deeply embedded in your DNA. You profess and embody a deep desire to love and serve one another, especially in times of crisis. And this last week alone, deacons and other members have done an amazing job of informing pastors and staff about very specific congregational needs that were urgent And in each of these cases, we found that you are all extending your own care and concern to grieving and hurting and struggling people in our midst. Christian education and spiritual formation from our youngest people to our oldest people is very important to you. 
You will say, I, I, I will say that you possess a willingness and a readiness to reach across cultural divides of politics and economics that is, frankly, pretty rare in the church today. You have remarkable abilities to recognize the gifts of others and to help them find outlets for spiritual expression of those gifts. The bonds that have held this family of faith together in the past are still celebrated and appreciated in healthy ways, and at the same time, you seem genuinely interested in finding ways to hold on to that past that don't hinder our future. And all three of us as pastors have really marveled at the wonderful spirit that is felt in this place whenever we gather for worship. You take your faith seriously, and you genuinely want to please God. So the spiritual glass of Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church is most assuredly half full. Sure, there are things that we all lack, There are things in our individual spiritual lives that we know we need to do better. And there are things in our communal lives of faith that we could probably do better too. We can, for example, do better with gratitude and generosity. Compared to other churches our size, we're just not giving at the same rate to Christ's ministry in the church, despite being located in a very affluent area. Doctrinally, we can probably be bolder in how we engage Scripture around difficult topics of race and gender and how we as the church welcome people who are marginalized by society. Ethically, the growing violence in our land calls out for us to be more courageous about what we really think Jesus would say about that violence and about what it's happening. But I'll be the first to tell you that engaging these kinds of issues and facing these growing edges honestly and faithfully can frankly be a pretty scary prospect. It reminds me of a story I've heard about Andrew Young, the former civil rights leader and congressman, mayor, ambassador. Young, who is a man of faith, who raised his family in the church, says that his daughter, his youngest daughter, came to him when she was 20 And she said she wanted to go to Uganda to work for Habitat for Humanity. Young was immediately fearful. As a politician, he had learned plenty about this part of Africa. He knew that Uganda was ruled by a ruthless dictator, that it was a place of violence and cultural uncertainty. And his daughter knew all of that too. But her calling was clear. She told her dad, it is something that Jesus has laid upon my heart. He wants me to go. Andrew Young says that as he watched his daughter's plane lift off the runway, bound for the dangers of Uganda, he couldn't breathe. But in that moment, something else became clear to him. I had always wanted my daughter to be a respectable Christian, he said. I had just never really thought about what it could mean if she was a real one. That's what Paul, the pastor who loved the Thessalonians dearly, who worried about them greatly, that's what he wanted for them, that they would be real Christians. 
not respectable Christians, not safe Christians, real Christians. And Paul knew that the world was a dangerous place for Thessalonian Christians. And he knew that the call to pick up their crosses and follow Jesus was a mission that was inherently perilous. And he also knew that there were things that were lacking in the faith that the Thessalonians had. But Paul also knew something else. Paul knew that it was not ultimately up to the Thessalonians or to Paul to make it all work. Paul knew that the power of Christ would fill their cups with whatever they needed, and not just with what they needed, but with so much more, with so much that their lives would literally overflow with the blessings of God. And that knowledge liberated Paul, not only to see that glass as half full, but to anticipate with joy all that God was going to do, everything that God was going to be pouring into those glasses until they, as the psalm says, runneth over. How can we thank God enough for you, Paul wrote, in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you? This is our message for the first Sunday of Advent. Sure, there are things that we lack But our glass is most assuredly half full, at least half full, and a light is coming into the world that will fill us up beyond measure. On this Lord's Day, with one candle lit, that is something we can celebrate with joy. Thanks be to God. Amen.